in your own copy of God's Word or in the one that's in front of you in the chairs to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 40. And as you turn to Acts chapter 8, this will be our last sermon in Acts for a while next Sunday, Lord willing. Uh, we'll start our Christmas series, and then I'm planning a brief topical series during January or February. Uh, and then in March, I'll return to Acts. Um, but for today, uh, our sermon is about how hard but important it is that we trust that Jesus knows how to build his church. I've been talking a lot about maturing as Christians and trusting that Jesus knows how to build his church is fundamental to spiritual maturity. Because as we've been seeing, Jesus often builds his church using disruption. We've seen this disruption in Acts when Jesus moves people around, sometimes in very uh, intense ways, like through persecution, as we saw a couple weeks ago. Although he doesn't only disrupt things uh, and move people around through persecution, right? Uh, in fact, that's the most uncommon thing Jesus uses. Uh, many times, Jesus gives people new jobs that require them to move. Uh, we know something about that. Uh, or people get married, which results in them moving. Sometimes health issues or old age causes movement to new places and changes in lifestyle. And all of these movements, whether they were caused by joyful events or hard events, they are all disruptive. And with that disruption comes pressure. So remember the word we most often translate as tribulation means pressure or intense pressure. And with every disruptive work of Jesus, there comes with it in some form uh, pressure. And that pressure could be the difficulty of letting people we love go and trusting them to Jesus. That pressure can also be, as we've seen in Acts, welcoming into our fellowship and into our lives those whom Jesus has brought into his church who are not like us, uh, who don't share our worldview, who don't share our politics or our life experiences, but who Jesus has called into life with him and therefore has called us to show sacrificial hospitality to welcome them, which as we talked about means laying down our hurts, fears, uncertainties, and welcoming people into our lives as Jesus has brought them to us, not as we want them to be. Uh, welcoming people openly who are different than us, forgiving people who have hurt us, saying goodbye to people we love, learning to live in a community that is just not the same year to year. That community is called the church. Uh, all of that disruption brings a lot of pressure. And that's why pursuing spiritual maturity is so important because Christians who are mature have learned the skills needed to handle that disruption and that pressure well by faith in Jesus. They've learned, for example, how to mourn well, as we've talked about this year, how to open their hearts in sorrow to Jesus and through that to have their capacity for kindness actually increase to have their hearts enlarged through grief and suffering. Uh, maybe you remember talking about that earlier when we were in Luke's gospel, uh, but not just how to mourn. They've also learned how to open their hearts to people who are different than they are by worshiping with them, by praying, not just for them, but with them, inviting them into their homes like we've seen in Acts. I know you're probably thinking like, Pastor Matt, are you going to re-preach all your Acts sermons in your introduction? Uh, no, sorry. Um, but I'm just trying to make the point that for the church to grow in a healthy way as Jesus builds it through disruption and change, that means learning how to trust that Jesus knows what he's doing. 
that these disruptions are actually good and that this pressure can lead us into actual deeper communion and trust in Jesus. And that as the preacher says in Ecclesiastes, Jesus is making all things beautiful in his time, including us here at Grace. And that's why as we read this really interesting and I think powerful story about Philip evangelizing the Ethiopian eunuch, I want us to see the spiritual maturity, the trust in Jesus that Philip showed as he was invited by Jesus into the disruptive work of the triune God. I think that will help us as we close 2022 and walk into 2023 tremendously uh, because Jesus builds his kingdom through disruption and change everywhere, including here at Grace. Uh, So let's read uh, Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40, pray, and then we'll reflect on all of this together. Acts chapter 8, verse 26. Let's hear the word of God. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opened not his mouth in his humiliation. Justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Thus far the reading of what can only be God's own word. Let's pray. Father, we know that your word is the tool that you use um, to bring life out of death, to bring a healing out of brokenness, to bring growth and maturity. It is a light to our feet, a lamp for our path. But Lord, we know that it will only do these things for us if your spirit blesses it to us. And so Father, we pray now that you would give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to believe your word. Father, may the words of my mouth as your preacher, and may the meditation of all our hearts as we are all called to hear and receive your word. May it all now be pleasing in your sight. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our text starts with Philip, who, as we saw two weeks ago, had with many Christians been driven by Saul's persecution from Jerusalem to Samaria. And just to remind you, Samaritans and Jews didn't get along. There was a long history of hatred, bigotry, and violence between these two groups. If you think about sort of Israel and Palestine, 
uh, Israel and Jordan, Israel and Iran, that would give you kind of a sense of, of how it went. And yet when Jesus sent Philip to, into Samaria, Philip immediately started giving them the gospel, inviting them into God's family, and therefore asking them into his life as equal members of the kingdom of God, as people that Philip would commit to loving the way that Jesus himself loved them all. And remember, we talked about how that kind of sacrificial hospitality and that kind of forgiveness and that kind of generosity was built up in Philip over months and years through the devotional practices of weekly corporate worship, weekly Sabbath, corporate prayer, and then uh, frequent sacrificial hospitality as the church gathered together in their homes. Well, now Jesus has another job for Philip, so he sends him an angel. Uh, why an angel and uh, not another Christian? Uh, it seems to me that God sends angels in the Bible when the message he has to give is so disruptive that it would be hard to believe if God did not send an angel. Uh, that's a guess, but it's a highly educated guess. Uh, but it's still a guess. Uh, anyway, God sends Philip an angel who in verse 26 says, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. So the angel tells Philip, go wait along the side of a road in the desert. Now, the text doesn't tell us where exactly Philip is when he gets this message, but we do know where the main cities in Samaria were, and from the nearest city to that road, Philip would have had to travel at least 30 miles on foot to go wait at the side of a road in the desert. So if I'm Philip... I'm asking questions like, okay, you want me to take a day, day and a half, to go stand by a desert road for how long? Like, should I bring lunch? Should I pack a book? Uh, what exactly do you want me to do? Uh, and while Philip doesn't ask these questions, or at least they're not recorded for us if he did, I'm, I'm sure he was wondering them. And I'm sure when he arrived there and, I, I guess, sat down and waited, he had to have been wondering, like, what is this all about? What is Jesus doing with me at the side of a road in the desert? And uh, this is one of the reasons why I titled this point, Wondering and Waiting. When Jesus does disruptive things, when he moves us around and puts us in places where there isn't a clear reason for us to be there, it causes us to wonder why. It causes us to wonder, how long am I going to wait? Now, we don't know how long he waited. It could have been minutes or hours. It could have been a day or two. But we're told in verse 27 and 28 that eventually Philip sees this high-ranking official, the treasurer of the Queen of Candace of Ethiopia, being pulled along in a chariot. And the Holy Spirit tells him, go over and join him. So now, along with wondering and waiting, is probably a little bit of fear. I mean, there must have been. This is clearly a powerful person they're riding in a chariot. And remember, the church's experience with powerful people who are leaving, who are in Jerusalem and associated with Jerusalem at this particular moment in time is that these powerful people want to execute them, imprison them, or drive them off, right? Persecute them. And I wouldn't be surprised if Philip was wondering, as I'm sure we all have at some point in our life with Jesus, does Jesus have a season of suffering for me now? Uh, is this a time when I'm going to walk with Jesus through the valley of the shadow of death? But again, we see no hesitation in the text, even if he was, as I suspect he was, feeling some hesitation in his art, at least fear and trepidation. 
Now, you see, Philip has learned to trust that Jesus builds his church and his people through disruption and that he could trust him to use these disruptive things to make all things beautiful in their time. So he gets up and he goes over to the chariot, and as he arrives at the chariot, he hears the Ethiopian eunuch reading from Isaiah about the Messiah. Uh, he finds a man who, like himself, was wondering and waiting. Uh, wondering and waiting about what? Well, the passage is about the Messiah. It's about the Savior. And the eunuch, as a worshiper of God, that's verse 27, he had gone to Jerusalem to worship. The eunuch is waiting for the Messiah of the God he worships. He's waiting for the Messiah of our God and Philip's God. And he's wondering about who this Messiah will be. But that's not all that he was wondering about. He was also wondering about his own place in the kingdom of God's Messiah. How do I know that? First, I know that because he was a eunuch, and a eunuch was someone who had surgery performed so that he could not have sexual relations. Uh, this surgery was quite common for men who worked for queens or other prominent and important women. But here's the thing. The Old Covenant has what we've uh, talked about in the past, purity laws. Now, if you were here a few months ago when I told you about the purity laws a little bit more in depth, we talked about how the purity laws dealt with things that brought people to the boundary between life and death, sickness and health, brokenness and wholeness. And if you were on that line or over that line towards brokenness, sickness, and death, you could not enter the temple and you could not worship with God's people in the temple. As a eunuch, he had crossed the boundary between life and death. He was no longer able to participate in the giving of life, that is having children, and because this was a result of surgery, he had also crossed the boundary of brokenness. But that's not all. He's not just a eunuch. He's also an Ethiopian. He's a Gentile. Now, in Jerusalem, the religious leaders there decided that Gentile worshipers of God and Jewish worshipers of God were not allowed into any of the same holy spaces at all, uh, which is not what the Old Testament says. The Old Testament allows Gentiles and Jews into the outer courtyard of the temple together, but during Jesus' day, in Philip's day, the religious leaders, the Sadducees, uh, they made the Gentiles worship in a separate courtyard, cornered off from the rest of God's people. But because he was a eunuch, this man would not have been allowed even into that courtyard. So this is a pretty amazing situation. Here's a man who traveled for weeks to worship God with God's people even though he was kept away from the center of fellowship with those people, even from the center of fellowship with his own fellow Gentile believers. And so you can see the Ethiopian eunuch is clearly expectantly waiting for the Messiah, but he had to have been wondering, will the Messiah, will the promised Savior of God and his people, will Jesus have a place in his kingdom for me? And he was probably a little afraid, especially after the experience he would just be leaving from Jerusalem, that the answer would be no. Uh, and that brings us to our second point, where we learn that Jesus brought Philip there to disrupt his life of wondering and waiting and fear in a very beautiful way. So after very humbly answering Philip's question that he can't understand Isaiah unless someone explains it to him, which is something every pastor loves to hear, um, he sits and listens very carefully to Philip, telling him in verses 34 and 35 that this passage is about Jesus, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus has come, that he's died, that he's risen again, 
that our sins are forgiven, our doorway into heaven is open, the kingdom of God is here in power, the gospel is going out, and it's inviting you to faith in Jesus. And then the eunuch says in verse 36, as they're going along uh, in this chariot together, see here is water, what prevents me from being baptized? Now, even with the clear excitement that the eunuch has, it's important to see that the question the eunuch asks is a real one. It's not rhetorical. Does my status as a eunuch and as a Gentile mean that baptism is not for me? Is there something about me that would keep me from the heart of Jesus and from the center of Jesus' people? I mean, how many of us have that question? Right? Is there something about me that would keep me from Jesus? Is there something intrinsic to me that will keep me away from friendships and relationship within Jesus' church? And the answer is, praise God, no. See, Jesus is building a kingdom that includes you as you are as an equal member, because Jesus has crossed the boundaries of life and death, of brokenness and wholeness, of sickness and health, so that we can join him freely, openly, and fully, so that he can uh, promise you out of his own resurrection glory that your brokenness will be made whole at the resurrection, that whatever sickness and force of death you may be experiencing, it will be swallowed up with life, and praise God, that wholeness and that life starts now. And so Philip must have said, yes, you can be baptized. Uh, and I'm, I'm certain Philip rejoiced in being able to give him that answer. Uh, certainly he must have rejoiced since, Jesus is, since he's the one who Jesus sent. But there's an element to the eunuch's question that if I were Philip, that would have had me answering slightly differently. I would have said, well, like nothing, technically. But if you want to be baptized, you should stop going back to Ethiopia and you should really stay here for a season. Uh, and here's why I would have said that. Because after his baptism, this Ethiopian eunuch is going to go back home. Where there would most probably have been a synagogue, so a gathering of, of Jews and Gentile believers in God. And I say that because that it's the most likely way the eunuch met God in the first place through a local synagogue and knew to go to Jerusalem to worship him there. But there wasn't a gathering of Christians there yet. There wasn't a church there yet. There weren't apostles there yet. There weren't ordained leaders there yet. And if I'm Philip, I'm worried about two things. I'm worried about the pressure this man is going to face by himself as he tells his fellow synagogue worshipers that the Messiah has come. His name is Jesus. He died on the cross for our sins and was raised to life on the third day, fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy and all these other prophecies. I'm going to worry about the pressure that comes from repeated conversations and the doubt that creeps in as people understandably say, really? And he's telling us this through you? I'm also going to worry about the pressure of possible hostile reactions. After all, Philip has been on the receiving end of some of those hostile reactions as Jesus, as the disruptive message of Jesus disrupts power structures and social structures. But Philip had the church and the apostles to help bear that pressure. This Ethiopian man, he won't have those things. 
And on top of that, I'm also going to worry about discipleship. I mean, it took Philip a long time to learn sacrificial hospitality and to learn how to forgive his enemies. And it, and it takes the constant help of Jesus' church to maintain that normally, doesn't it? So if I'm Philip, I'm thinking, boy, Jesus, like, is this really what you want? Is this really how you want to bring your gospel for the first time to Ethiopia? To ask Philip to baptize this man and send him on his way, completely reliant on the mercy of God, is a pretty big disruption in the way God normally does things, isn't it? And yet Philip does it because he trusts Jesus. He trusts that Jesus chose this man, this outsider who had dedicated himself to worshiping Jesus, even when no one else would worship with him, as the one who would bring the gospel to Ethiopia. He trusted Jesus to disrupt communities that he would never see in a way that would bring life. He trusted Jesus with the exception to the normal rule of how disciples are made and how disciples are matured. He trusted that Jesus would take charge as only he can of the discipleship and the protection of his people. Uh, it's a pretty amazing lesson, isn't it? Uh, and it's the kind of trust that I hope we can grow in together as Jesus's people here at Grace. Not that this kind of thing would be normal, where like untested people are sent off without support. I mean, again, there's a reason why God started the whole thing off with an angel, <laughs> right? Uh, this is so far outside the normal way Jesus does things that he sent a heavenly messenger to help Philip get on board. But even though this is an extreme example that we see in our text, the faith required to trust that Jesus builds his church through disruption and that he knows what he's doing as he's doing it, that takes, uh, that he takes care of his disciples and grows us through pressure and change, that kind of faith is not extreme. If you think about it, that's the kind of faith necessary to send your children out into the world in a spiritually healthy way. That's the kind of faith necessary to walk into a new season of life as a, as a church and into new relationships as the body of Christ, as Jesus builds up his, his family. It's the kind of faith necessary to trust that people's life with God in our church, which is always full of twists and turns, are firmly in God's hands. See, the ability to say, okay, this outcome is not what I would have chosen. It doesn't really meet my expectations. It's uncomfortable. I'm feeling fear, anxiety, and confusion. I'm unsure of which way to go, but I trust you, Jesus. And I will keep myself devoted to you. I'll follow you in this change because you are with me and you are with us. You are leading us. You are guiding us. You are the shepherd of our souls. That is a response made by mature Christians who have learned how to walk maturely with Jesus by faith as he builds his kingdom. And that is what we need here at Grace if we are going to be emotionally and spiritually healthy Christians who are able to join Jesus as fully as possible in the disruptive work of building the kingdom. Because I do believe that one of Jesus' goals for us is to grow a faith in us that is so deep that even if he were to apparently transport us 60 miles away to a new city, like he did with Philip in verses 39 through 40, and Philip found himself in Azotus, uh, that we would be able to continue working faithfully with Jesus, like Philip did. He said, okay, I'm at Azotus. There's a major highway that goes up to Caesarea. I'm going to take several days and 
go up this highway and tell people about Jesus. I'm going to join into the disruptive work of Jesus as he disrupts communities and brings change to the good news of his gospel. But that kind of faith where you go, okay, this is new. Uh, I'm going to be faithful to Jesus in it. That kind of faith takes time to grow. But it's founded on the idea that we can trust Jesus to build his church and not just build his church by adding people into it, but also to build his church by maturing us into Christians who live out our faith that Jesus does all things well, that he does them all for our good, even if those things are disruptive and pressuring. And so, my friends, as we worship together, as we pray together, as we rest together, as we live together in sacrificial hospitality, let's realize that these devotional practices that we've been talking about throughout our series in Acts are necessary so we can walk with Jesus confident that he is building his church and building us up, even in times of disruption and pressure. In fact, that he uses times of disruption and pressure to sometimes create the greatest growth. And it's okay, because he's with us. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you build your church and you build us up so that in your time, all things are made beautiful. Thank you that you do not stop building until it is good. Now, Father, we know that you often use both good and difficult disruptions to do this work, and we confess that sometimes those disruptions and the pressure that comes with them, they're hard for us, but we want to trust you and follow you and join with you as you build your kingdom. And so please, bless us with an ever-maturing and strengthening faith so that together we can devote ourselves to you and uh, faithfully serve you as you lead us to glory and send out the gospel. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.